Welcome to Road to Consensus, the podcast designed to help you get smart before Consensus 2019. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly, and today we're joined by Edward Woodford, a co-founder and CEO of SeedCX, an institutional quality trade platform. Institutional quality being the important word here. Not much has risen to institutional quality in this industry until now. A few entrants in 2017 and 2018... And now SeedCX, the second platform that has a swap execution facility license uh, in America, which is a big deal. And Edward, I happened upon the impressive list of licenses that you guys hold to operate in America, and it looks like you guys are locked and loaded and ready to go just about anywhere Bitcoin can go. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so w- there, there are a number of swap execution facilities out there, that just that... Uh, there's a small number of us that are trying to launch derivatives on the actual swap execution facility. Crypto seems to be one of the one of the areas whereby regulation is in some degrees a sexy topic, right? Because it allows you to actually do business. It's it's we see regulation as uh, or getting the regulatory licenses as a necessary enabler. It's a necessary con- condition for success is not necessarily a sufficient condition for success. So maybe to break that down a little bit more. Um, everything in the United States is considered either a commodity or it's considered a security. And on the commodity side, the, the way to think of it is kind of, it's kind of like a quadrant uh, whereby you have spot trading, i.e. the here and now, and then you have the derivatives piece, the forward dated pieces. And so the actual spot trade in the United States, the matching and execution in and of itself is typically not regulated. The settlement of it is regulated. That is why you need to be a money transmitter, a money service business, um, etc. And then on the derivative side, we are a swap execution facility, which allows us, um, subject to regulatory approvals for certain products, to launch forward-dated contracts, options, different uh, contracts on, say, hash rates or volatility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's oh, the really? Cost. So you're, you're not just going to be trading the underlying price? No, there's a lot more that can be done there. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know... Digital assets are interesting because there's so many different um, elements which which drive price, and so you can essentially launch products a- around those. So, for example, the hash rate or whether a fork is going to occur. These are there's economic risk there that can be mitigated through um, derivatives. So, if I'm un- if I'm understanding correctly, you're going to be able to use your platform to prove if price does in fact follow hash rate. So. There, there's definitely things that can be gleaned from the pricing, right? So there could be an implied metric as in, do we think that a fork is going to occur based on what the market um, is dictating? What does the market, when does the market think that a, um, there's going to be a change in the hash rate, for example? So there, there's a lot of things that can be gleaned out of market data. You can get a forward curve. From the data, so will the price of Bitcoin? You know, the very, the very often question that is asked is, is the price of Bitcoin going to go up and down? Well, the interesting thing here is that you can get a forward curve, and you can say what well, the market thinks that it will go up or that it will go down, and this is the time horizon, etc. So there's a lot of interesting things that come out of um, derivatives. But right now, you're just a spot market, correct? Yes. Yeah, so right now, um, we are a spot market. We currently have the largest um, digital assets on our platform um, to USD pairs, and we're introducing Euro, Euro um, Japanese, and Japanese yen um, in the next couple of months. And that will all be on one platform. So yes, yeah, so our, our spot market is, is launched, and we actually have some of the deepest books um, in uh, Bitcoin and ETH in particular. So if you're looking to do size, and we're focused on institutions, 
you know, you can get very good execution for a couple of hundred BTC, for example, with lowest fees and um, very low slippage. What, what kind of execution costs would you have on a large trade like that? Yeah, so taking in fees and slippage, you can typically do um, over 150 BTC for around 22 bits total execution, which is the fees charged on our platform for taking and also the, um, the slippage on that as well, which is very, very competitive. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and you guys have also created a on-chain settlement network. Can you can you describe how that works within this context? Yeah, so actually, it's it's great timing. Um, we actually just announced our kind of assessment network that we've exposed out to different groups. So there's two parts of a trade. When when did when did you announce that? That's, that was today. Oh, breaking news! Wow. Okay. Okay. I was I was I was running around doing doing research in the past few days. I I, I didn't realize we'd we'd happened upon the fortuitous day that it launched. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So our settlement infrastructure um, we've been talking about for 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 a while in terms of how it's different, but today we actually announced that um, third parties can essentially use our settlement infrastructure to settle trades. And so basically, what we're doing here is we're bifurcating the match and execute of a trade away from the settled part of the trade. So what our settlement infrastructure allows groups to do is any group that wants to match trades, whether that be over the phone, over Telegram, via API, they can then drop those trades into us and we will do the entire settlement process. So we're taking on the regulatory aspects, i.e. the money transmission aspects, um, and we're also obviously managing the movement of the fiat and the crypto in an atomic swap fashion once both sides have funded. What is unique about our settlement infrastructure and this is what we find exciting. I mean, if you look at Twitter, what, what a lot of people talk about when people talk about the institutionalization of crypto, a lot of people say, well, this, is what, this isn't what crypto was designed for. And I think that's really a function of the way that people are building these things, whereby, for example, other groups are omnibusing all digital assets. Well, for us, in our, in our system... Can, can you say that one more time? Omnibusing all digital assets? What do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, so basically what that means is that, say you trade... And pretty, I could name any exchange out there pretty much because we're the only exchange that does it like this. But say, for example, you were to trade on Coinbase. You, uh, your crypto assets are held in the same wallet as Joe Schmo and every other client. It's like a, the hot wallet for, for satisfying trades. Exactly. But what's different with us is that each client has their own dedicated wallet, whereby we hold the private keys. But what that means is we can give you the wallet address and you can actually definitively look on chain and say, yes, this is what I own. And then what happens is when there's a trade on our system that occurs off chain, and then at the point of actual um, end of trading session, we basically on a bilateral basis net out those positions to say me and you have traded five times in the day and each one of those times I bought a Bitcoin off you. At the end of the day, there will be a net transaction of five Bitcoin and there will actually be an on-chain transaction. And so what we think this is, we think this is the perfect hybrid between centralization, um, whereby it's high frequency, you know, low cost of transaction, but then the benefits of decentralization, whereby there's no trust, there's, there's less trust needed in a third party and a definitive proof of ownership and a definitive um, audit trail basically using the value of the blockchain. And so that's what we think is really exciting, is the fact that this is the first time a, a, a centralized exchange actually using the benefits of the blockchain. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, so So until now, it's simply been you have a, some liquidity and and you don't really know which Bitcoin is being traded for which there's no record of it, but you're actually using the public ledger side of things. Exactly. Um, which, you know, people say, well, why do institutions need this? Well, I think there's been a change in, 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 in trends. Um, partly, I mean, there's been things like MF Global, which was a big intermediary that basically blew up. And that's definitely changed the way that people think about holding their assets. And there's also the need to prove ownership. Um, certain, for example, hedge funds need to definitively show, hey, we actually own these assets. And so there's benefits of actual decentralization for these big institutions. And that's what we're trying to take advantage of. Would there be an implication for um, when the type of bespoke custody responsibilities come out for, for, you know, in the event of a real institutional uptake in this, in this asset class and real bespoke custody solutions, would this be leveraged in that kind of a custody solution? Or would you imagine this type of, of integration with the public ledger be part of a custody solution? Well, we, we think it's an important element of it. Our view of digital assets is that thinking of digital assets just purely as Bitcoin, Litecoin, ETH, BCH is a very narrow view of what digital assets are. Our view on digital assets is that it has the same potential disruptive power that electronification had on markets. So basically, it can impact every asset class. And by extension of that, if you actually believe that and you actually see the disruptive power that this can have, then let's build things a little bit differently where there's not this pure centralization, the requirement to have ledgers on top um, and the trust in the third it's part. Not, it's, it's not just add-ons. It's not just add-ons. No, we're not just trying to allow for Bitcoin to be traded because you can trade Bitcoin in, a non, in an omnibus fashion whereby everybody's accounts co-mingled. But let's think about this as potentially being more disruptive, and that's our view. So let's build a system that takes the benefits of decentralization and digital assets and then build that system for Bitcoin, but then potentially allow that to be used for treasuries or euro dollar or gold even. Um, so that's really the why, why we built this the way that we have. So if I'm hearing it correctly, what you're saying is um, people have been quite focused until now, understandably, the maturity of the industry, but people have been saying, okay, this is a new asset class. Yeah, that's probably true. But what you're saying is the bigger picture, this is a new financial system, and it should be built for the end goal of a new financial system and not just to make sure that this new financial asset class has all the, the boxes checked so it fits in with other types of asset classes. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the word system can sometimes be a little bit, you know, a bit loaded, um, you know, politically. Sure. But w really what we think it does, it's really the core backbone, the infrastructure potentially changes. And this is what's exciting about that, because if you, you know, if, if somebody's a, a, you know, a historian of markets, what has really disrupted the incumbent powers or players has been technology. ICE, which is launching back, if you actually look at their history, the way that they came up, well, partly it was good timing because of Enron, but more importantly, their contracts were identical to the contracts that were traded on NYMEX. Now, nobody's really probably, none, you know, very few people have heard of NYMEX. And the reason for that was because NYMEX was of a, period, a function of the past with actual pits. And ICE came along and said, well, look at this great thing called electronification. And that basically disrupted the incumbent powers. And we think that tokenization has the same potential to have a disruptive effect on the established players. And, you know, that's what we're excited about. 
So then, so then, would this be the correct assessment? So before the digitization, really just handled the to and fro and the logistics of deals and and assets being traded between each other. But what you're saying now is you're infusing the native digital aspects into the whole network and allowing that sort of native digital the attributes of being natively digital to be leveraged to create this new efficient system. Absolutely. Yeah. Put it better than me. Thank you. Oh, well, <laughs> it's my job, man. It's my job. <laughs> well, that that's really interesting. It's it's neat that you guys have, have really captured and, and have this long-term vision. But this long-term vision is important because you can leverage this stuff for your plans for the derivatives market. And if you can briefly describe, so the derivatives market that you guys are planning is uh, the main goal that you have right now. But I'm a, it's not live. Can you describe a bit about what is unique about your uh, approach to creating these derivative contracts? Yeah. So r- right now, what is live is our spot market and our assessment infrastructure that third parties are, are using. We are approved as a swap execution facility with the CFTC. The piece that needs to be, an inverted commas, approved is the actual contract. And so the contract that we're launching is a physically settled forward with a maturity of the lowest is one week all the way up to nine months out and so the you know some unique features about this is that it's physically settled that is the contracts that are traded right now are 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 not you know the settlement infrastructure piece is also unique so you can definitively see these on-chain transactions and you know the the maturity dates as well um for example bax is just a 24-hour basically one day um future this allows you to place essentially positions um, much further out into the future. Those are the core fundamental differences. Yeah, no, no, I've never heard of a nine-month one. I guess the longest that is out there is the CME, is it not? Yeah, so CME goes out. I, I'm not sure exactly how far they will go out, but I think there's two elements here. There's, there's, there's contracts that are being traded on, on, on exchange, and then there's also contracts that are being traded bilaterally. Um, in particular, we have a lot, you know, we see a lot of growth in, in Asia right now with forwards and options. A lot of this has been done on a bilateral basis between large counterparties. And, you know, the, the typical maturities do extend between those times. And so that's the decision point around those maturities is the longest data that people are currently comfortable writing um, based on feedback from clients has been nine months. And then the weekly maturity makes sense for miners who sometimes, who, you know, the, the, there's a process amongst some miners to rebalance the way that they actually mine every week. And so that's why they make a decision, we're going to mine X for this week. And, uh, you know, this is gro- a gross simplification, but essentially it allows you to lock in those profits for that week. And so that's why we've set those two maturity, um, a lower and upper bounds. And, and and in your product research, I wonder, you know, you came with a lower bound of one week. Was there any discussion around being competitive with the backed one day contract only because so much of, of these crypto traders do this 24-7? And I can imagine a 24-hour contract getting pretty addictive for some of these people. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, if you, in my view, if you want to actually trade and you want to hold on, I mean, for me, it's basically T plus one settlement, which is how our market works. So if you want to own Bitcoin and you want to own uh, Bitcoin for, for a day or just, for, you know, and roll that position essentially day after day, which is essentially how that contract works, then why not actually own the actual fundamental asset in the spot market? So that's really how we, we compete more directly with BACT on that product, but that's through our spot market. So, so the, 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 the sort of workaround that a lot of the day traders use, which is jump into a stable coin, jump back into Bitcoin at a different price and, and all that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's more conventional yeah. spot trading. The, the benefit, yeah, you know, yeah. Bax has gone for this concept 
and it is a novel yeah. concept of a one day of a one day future but it, for all intents and purposes it functions pretty much similar to a spot spot transaction yeah, it sure does. With without the um, counterparty risk, I guess of of some of the or the big stablecoin out there, which we which there's always sort of questions surrounding. Yeah, you're trading on a on a on a regulated market, um, and and these kinds of things. But you know, I think you know, and we we touched upon at the start of this interview the importance of regulation. We are highly regulated. We have close to fifty different regulatory licenses. But you know, a lot of people say, well. Regulation is all that we need to, 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 to make this institutional. I, I don't agree with that. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that need to change, a lot of other things that need to be built. The regulatory piece, I mean, if you look at where most of the volume is happening right now, it is on non-regulated markets. Now, that will certainly mm-hmm. change and evolve, but it is one step, and there's a lot more that needs to, needs to change, including how things are stored, including the technology including about going above and beyond just the pure compliance need, um, you know, lower bound of a regulator sets going above and beyond that. Sure. And and like that Bitwise research showed this weekend, um, there's clearly some manipulation going on from some of these exchanges. And, and uh, you know, what do you tell? I wonder what you tell. You, you have, I can assume, a pretty sophisticated client base. When they come to you with questions around that kind of market manipulation, how do you handle them? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two elements there. One is um, just because a market in and of itself is not a regulated market does not mean that manipulation is legal. The CFTC and the DOJ has jurisdiction pretty much if, um, to, to, to enforce um, effective and compliant markets. And has shown a willingness to do things they wouldn't do otherwise with, with the Bitcoin world. Exactly. And they've shown a willingness to, to, to look into those things, as have other regulatory jurisdictions as well. For example, South Korea, there was a trader who's just been sent to, to prison. So... Um, that's kind of one element which I think is sometimes misunderstood, which is, you know, the, it is illegal no matter where, where it's done or, or what, how it's done. In terms of how we address it with our clients, the, the, the pivotal, one of the key points is we do not have a principal trading desk. So we are not trading against our clients, which distorts incentives, which sometimes is one of the triggers for manipulation. Um, secondly, we also monitor both our spot market and our swap execution facility for manipulative activity. So we have a series of over 30 automated alerts, and it doesn't mean that the alert goes off, hey, this trader is doing something. It can lead to an investigation and questions that are asked to basically make sure that there's the proper functioning of those markets. I mean, I'll be completely honest with you. I I get an offer probably once every couple of weeks now from a group that essentially is alluding to wash trading. Did that bitwise report surprise me? Um, it, the, the content, no. Um, the number, I, I, it's hard to put an exact number on. But you know, I get an offer every single month, at least, whereby a group will kind of nudge, nudge, shake, shake. How much do you need? How, how much are you willing to pay for X amount of volume? Um, so you know, our, our response is always, well, we are highly regulated. It is no matter even if it's not on a regulated market, it is illegal, and we actively enforce against these kind of manipulative um, practices. And, and, and I guess through your on-chain settlement network, you preempt any of this from being uh, possible with the way you uh, are able to formalize these trades because you can't, I mean, there's, there's clearly a record. You're leveraging the public ledger side of it, which would mean you can't perform these kinds of trades at scale, I would imagine. Well, you, you, could, there is a, there, you could in the sense of um, the intraday is, is kind of off, is, is off-chain, right? So okay, I understood. That, that, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, element okay, okay. can be done. But 
Um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's certainly been done in this space. Um, people suggest it, um, you know, make offers. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's still pretty, you know, it's, it's still there. But that is not unique to crypto. If you look at the enforcement actions across the globe, um, you see it in gold, FX, um, copper, etc. Um, people will try to manipulate markets. And part of the differentiation with us is, look, we surveil. We take this seriously. And we make sure that, you know, not everybody's going to win on the platform. But what, we'll have, what, we, what, is, what we can guarantee is that everybody will have a fair and equitable um, way of accessing the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how you guys handled the news about the SIBO contract ending. Um, perhaps the reasons around uh, its lack of uptake. Um, and then all of that, let's say, put in the context of what is the state of actual institutional interest here? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there were some... You know, there were certainly some questions around the, the CBO contract versus, say, the CMEs. Particularly the, the auction uh, price being set, yeah. Exactly. So the way that, you know, the, for those who maybe aren't familiar, basically the CME settlement price is, a, is an aggregate, it's a volume-weighted aggregate in simple terms of, across a number of Of Kraken, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they can accept the contract and, you know, or you have to have information sharing agreements in place, etc. Uh, the SIBO the went for a different route where basically they settled not to Gemini's price, but just to Gemini's auction. And you can go back and look at the historical data and you're settling to a couple of tens of thousands of dollars. So people's sense was that this was more easily manipulated, despite the fact that the SIBO and Gemini said that they collaborated looking at the positions that people would take on the auction versus their position in the futures market. But it still made some people um, uncomfortable. Now, do I think that was the core driver for them um, to basically take a step back? You know, it certainly was, their contract wasn't doing as well as the CMEs. But I think, you know, there, there's a reality. And if you look at the politics behind SIBO, um, their share price is down on the year by a significant percentage. They're facing some, some pressure from their investors. And other, other things aside from crypto have been nixed. And I think it's largely an investor-driven piece whereby it's focused on the things that we do well, which is basically the VIX. Let's expand that. And then we can focus on these more peripheral things, peripheral being um, the percentage of volume that is actually generated from them. So I think those are kind of some of the core drivers. You know, being here in Chicago, you know, there's been a lot of change at the CBO's management level in the last couple of months. And, you know, I think it's all been intertwined. Obviously, it's a much sexier story to say, hey, um, Bitcoin down, SIBO stops listing. Um, that may be part of the story, but I think it's, mm. uh, it's, it's grossly simplified. And, and, and I suppose, yeah, I guess, I suppose if, you're, if they're going to focus on the VIX anyway, you know, if we're right about Bitcoin in the, in the large macro sense, the VIX will become a very important tool for, for Bitcoin, definitely. So that, that could be interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly people like, people suppose, you know, some traders like um, Bitcoin because of its volatility. Um, etc. Um, so yeah, certainly, and the correlations between um, stocks and uh, and crypto, um, you know, the fact that they're not largely correlated, people like that. But yeah, I mean, I I, I think I think that they they never said that they'll come at, be out of it um, full stop. But I think that context of the share price and other movements there um, add some useful color to that discussion. 
So, so larger issues that are a lot very internal to SIBO, not necessarily a reflection of the state of institutional interest. But where would you put the state of institutional interest and, let's say, sophistication right now from your bird's eye view? Yeah. Um, so we are bullish in terms of the adoption, especially in this year. We've noticed a, a particular uptick in com- things that were conversations actually leading to action. I think that we're following a natural cycle. So, you know, right now, most of the prop shops, proprietary trading firms, are in digital assets. And that makes sense because the fiduciary responsibility is a lot lighter when it's essentially your own money. Family offices have entered the space, um, again, because of the fiduciary responsibility point. And now you're starting to get more and more hedge funds actually enter the space. And that's just the natural evolution of the way that new products are are launched. Then at the very end will probably be pension funds. So I think we're following this normal trend, this normal cycle. And, you know, we're starting to get more and more in terms of that, I think, in that adoption cycle, more and more hedge funds actually coming into the space. And I'm not talking about crypto-specific hedge funds. I'm talking systematic hedge funds, macro hedge funds, um, starting to have, starting to actually enter the space rather than just talking about entering the space. Now, do, do, do a lot of these people think in terms of, of which assets have institutional quality? Is that an issue? Do they see much quality past Bitcoin? Um, or is everything else sort of really speculative to them? I would say that the largest institutions, what they are, and this is, again, talking with broad brush strokes, it is typically the large cap um, digital assets. And the reason for that is maybe maybe it is because of their belief in terms of you know these are maybe long lasting or, or or whatever but it's really the liquidity is really the biggest thing if you want to deploy a couple of million bucks which isn't much money for these institutions which coins can you actually get in and out in a relatively easy way we're talking about our exchange being the best execution for in spot for a couple of hundred btc that is not that much money so think of that going down to the top 20 coin, for example, that is significantly less. It's where can you actually deploy capital? And I think that's really the biggest consideration right now for these groups. They're thinking of this more from a non-correlated asset class, looking at it from a numerical standpoint. Uh, this fundamental analysis about which coin will actually survive, I think, is certainly been discussed by some groups, but that is the minority. So, so would you say that they're still looking for um, an investment thesis? Is that really what is sort of lacking? They they see some um, quality there. They're not that interested in in the coins because of liquidity and 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 all these issues. There's only a few that are really um, of the of the size and 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 liquidity that they're interested in. But that there's still a unifying direction that's being formulated inside a lot of these shops to help them understand and strategize how to deploy. Is that something you hear going on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's how do we how do we have edge in this in this in this space, right? I mean, in other markets, they may have edge because of certain data that they have. They may have invested a lot of money into infrastructure. Crypto is a little different. Um, so people are trying to figure out how they have edge and. Um, why they're using crypto in their portfolio. So you do deal with a lot of these um, high-quality, very sophisticated customers. Um, How much of your 
day-to-day job is still about educating. Um, do you have to walk a lot of these people through uh, how to navigate data in the industry? Or has a lot of this work just been done naturally, organically through the growth of the entire asset class over the few years? And many new people that you come across as customers are already pretty well versed in the space. Where is that uh, narrative right now? Yeah, I think people are actually getting more and more educated on the asset class. Um, and just because somebody doesn't trade digital assets doesn't mean that they're not educated on them. Very typically, you know, for me, that's actually a much better place to be than just starting from a base of close to zero because it's, it's easier to then convert that person into a client. Now, we're not here to say this is how you should trade, this is how you should manage your portfolio. We're here to set up the facts about the fact that, you know, the, the way that this, this product trades. Um, but really our biggest pitch is, look, you make the decision about what you want to trade, how you want to trade it, but the biggest consideration for you is operational risk. It, because very often when people think about adding something to their portfolio or thinking about trading something, they're, they're using something called a sharp ratio, which is essentially a risk-adjusted uh, weighting. What is not in that, in that, in that formula is operational risk. And that is what's holding people back. This operational risk element is very hard to quantify. And as prices have depressed and easy trades such as easy arbitrage opportunities such as the Kimchi spread has gone away, people are needing to consider operational risk far more. And our goal is simply to reduce operational risk to as close to zero as possible so that you are then just making an investment decision based on the facts of how crypto trades and how you want to manage your portfolio. Um, And that's really what we try to focus on. Um, but yeah, part of my time is still spent on education, especially with some of the biggest um, macro hedge funds. Um, but you know, there's still there's a lot of players who are active in the space, and splitting your time between those two groups is important because when the big groups are going enter the space, they're going to call someone that they trust. But also, you need to keep focused on the groups that are actually uh, funding your business day in day out. Mm-hmm. But but uh, a, a great result that already in this space um, for for a, a relatively young company, you're doing what you set out to do and are not being pulled in different directions given the winds of the industry. You're actually focusing on execution costs, making sure settlement is is as clear as possible, and that you're providing a sort of view of liquidity around the space, which I think is uh, a, an important role to play for these people to have confidence in in these markets. I appreciate that. Well, thanks for your time today. Uh, it's been really interesting talking about this stuff. I've, I've been a, a sideline fan. I still haven't been doing any trading uh, on any derivatives markets, but uh, uh, I will shortly. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in getting my feet wet, and, uh, and maybe I'll use your platform. I don't know if I have 150 BTC to throw around yet, but uh, <laughs> we, it would be fun to get a walkthrough one day. Yeah, more than happy to show you some of the systems. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time. Cheers. Thank you. That's it for episode six of Road to Consensus. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the content, you can get a lot more of it if you register for Consensus at Consensus2019.com. Listeners can use the code ROAD200 and get $200 off a ticket. Join us for our next episode with guest Eric Piscini, CEO of Citizens Reserve. See you at Consensus May 13th to 15th in New York City. 